Welcome to the Big Fish Adventures in Tech podcast. I am your host, Sager Fisher, and today I am really excited to bring on a special guest. His name is Hector Monsegur. He's also known by his alias as Sabu. He is a former member of the hacking collectives Anonymous and Lulsec. Uh, he was born in New York City in the 80s and became skilled in the hacking um, community in the late 1990s and quickly rose to prominence as one of the most skilled and prolific hackers of his time. Today, however, Hector is a vocal advocate for cybersecurity and ethical uh, hacking practices and has spoken at numerous conferences and events. He currently works as a consultant and advisor at Alacronet and helps organizations to protect themselves against cyber threats and stay ahead of emerging threats and technologies. He is also the co-host of the podcast Hacker and the Fed. So Hector, thank you so much for, for joining the show. I really appreciate it. You and I met, or I was introduced to you through the folks at Alacronet on a webinar a couple weeks ago. And I immediately was like, oh man, what a fascinating background. I would love to have him as a guest. So I just reached out and this is obviously very telling of who you are as a person. You graciously offered your time having no context behind who I am and this podcast. So first and foremost, thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, I really am excited about our conversation today. Yeah, for sure. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm always, uh, I'm always open to talking with folks and meeting new people. So it's, uh, um, you know, it, it was definitely something I had to do. So I'm glad that you reached out and uh, here we are. Great. So I think one of the reasons why I was so drawn to have you on the podcast is because a quality that I appreciate the most in people by far is they're, you know, someone who has just completely turned their life around. And I'll tell you why, because for a while, I think in my 20s, I was pretty jaded and I didn't actually really think that people were capable of change. And then, of course, as you grow older and wiser and, you know, collect friends along the way, and, and I have seen time and time again that it is possible. And so I think your background and kind of how you started out in the world and where you are today is just a true testament to the triumph of the human spirit in that you don't have to, you know, your past doesn't have to shape the trajectory of your future. And so I think for me, that's really the the driving force behind asking you to get on the podcast. So first, I just want to acknowledge that about you up front. Um, and if you could just give us, you know, for the folks that don't know who you are, just give us a background, um, you know, starting maybe back into, you know, your time in, in New York City and you were born there in the 80s and then kind of how you got into the hacking world and ultimately what motivated you to pursue it. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is an interesting story. If I were if I were not myself, if I, were, if I was an outsider, um, I would definitely find <laughs> I would find it to be an interesting tale, um, and I appreciate the kind words, and uh, and I also appreciate that you know that you're able to see that yeah, folks change, people do change. Um, the way I see life is that we're constantly evolving, um, and it you know life is a journey, right? So we learn along the way, we make mistakes, and uh, you know I guess at the end when we we're about to meet our the great equalizers, when we'll kind of figure out who we are. Um, but as for myself, some background for the audience here is that, uh, I grew up in New York city, specifically the lower East side. Um, uh, if you want to get more specific than that, I came from alphabet city Avenue D and, uh, it was an interesting place. I mean, you know, a couple avenues away, you had CBGBs, you had, 
um, all these different scenes in one small space, right? Mm -hmm. um, for the foodies, it was a great place if you wanted to experiment with different foods. Uh, my neighborhood specifically uh, used to be called Little Deutschland. Um, so by the time I was born, there were still remnants of uh, German and Austrian and uh, uh, Jewish folks that were still living in the neighborhood. Now that's changed a bit. Um, as a lot of them moved out or moved into like uh, uh, parts of Brooklyn, Williamsburg, et cetera. But I still got to enjoy, uh, you know, the food, the cultures. Um, but unfortunately also, you know, there was also like that whole drug scene. Mm -hmm. um, LES, uh, Louis said for short, um, you know, with, I would say in the eighties and nineties was a, a heavy drug zone. Um, there was, there was some celebrities who went there and, and they were overdosed or get arrested or, uh, so it, it's had, it kind of had that bad vibe, uh, for outsiders, for people that lived there. It was, it was an interesting place. Um, my family became involved in the drug game. Um, and eventually they got involved in, in elements of organized crime. And, uh, I mean, it was a point in 95, 96, a ton of murders had taken place and you had Rudolph Giuliani, who was the mayor at the time, uh, sweeping entire neighborhoods all across New York city and hitting uh, you know, hundreds of people or thousands of people with conspiracy charges. And my family fell, uh, within that, um, within that spree. Uh, I mean, it was essentially, uh, without a family, you know, from one day to the other. Mm. And I had to kind of figure out my path um, and figure out who I was from there. Mind you, I was only, you know, 11, 12. Um, I had no idea who I was. I had no idea where to go. And, uh, you know, I just kind of, you know, I mean, there was a brief period where I was homeless and I had an uncle that took me in. Like all these really cool things happened as a result of it. Um, tragic, but it allowed me to kind of start to develop myself. Mm. Um I got into film a lot. And so I would, I would see films like hackers where well, hackers came out in 95, uh, the net in, in 96. Um, but what really, you know, piqued my curiosity is watching war games. I know it's very cliche now, but I always found it fascinating that, you know, a kid behind a computer could, uh, um, could obtain so much knowledge and getting on the internet in the mid nineties allowed me to kind of, uh, you know, reach some of that knowledge. There were a lot of e-zines and magazines that came out um, in those days. And a lot of folks from like the BBS era that were leaving BBS and going onto the internet were kind of bringing some of that knowledge with them. And uh, the rest is history, honestly. From there, it was a matter of reading, understanding, learning what hacking was, uh, what security concepts were, um, learning programming languages, learning how to operate Unix. And then, of course, the whole uh, learning to hack by hacking to learn. Um, which is, you know, since I was not a student uh, at a university that did not have access to Unix, the only way for me to operate Unix was to break into a Unix system. Um, and that's how I became a systems administrator. And then uh, by the time I hit 18, I, I already had a career. So you were entirely self-taught up until this point. Mm -hmm. No formal education, no sitting in a classroom, learning computers. It was just you in your own time, um, learn, trial and error, learning how to how to do this hacking thing. That's exactly right. It was trial and error. Um, I would say 90 something percent of that was just me learning on my own and practicing and testing. Um, I, I don't hold any certificates. I mean, at best I have a GD. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know the the one thing I'll say is that uh, even though I've learned a lot, it's taken me a long time to get here. Um, you know, it's it's not as easy as some may think. You know, uh, we didn't have Google back then, or we didn't have. I mean, we had Alta Vista, um, but we didn't have Try Hack Me and Hack the Box and all these different platforms that exist today. So yeah, it took me a while to get to where I'm at. Um, and it was an interesting ride, learning from that perspective. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, black cats from that era kind of followed the same path. Now, what would you say was your, you know, your primary motivator behind pursuing this kind of career path? If you've, you know, I don't know if you refer to it as a career or not, but was it purely out of survival? I'm sure that was a large component of it, right? Or is it just genuinely something that you found yourself gravitating towards and picking up easier than other folks? That's a great question. Uh, initially, it was escapism. I wanted to escape my reality. I was sad that my, you know, my dad and my aunt went to prison for a very long time. Um, my grandmother was severely depressed. She lost her children to the prison system, to the drug, um, the war on drugs. And so um, initially it was escapism. Right? I was trying to escape. Uh, then it became curiosity, you know, and then of course it was, well, can I turn this into a career path? Um, I, I'll, I'll let you know right now that yes, uh, prior to, um, well, I would say at the beginning it was mostly hacking out of curiosity, hacking for knowledge. I would break into a system and uh, maintain it. I would patch it. I would sit on it. Um, it wasn't until much later where I began to actually abuse the access. Uh, I would say that, you know, it, did, it didn't become, uh, it wasn't a situation where I was breaking into systems for the sake of, well, let me steal a credit card and, and buy some stuff or, let me um, see if I could take down a foreign government. I mean, that wasn't initially what would, would kind of, you know, what was my motivator. Um, I think that that became a thing once I got into hacktivism in the early 2000s, right? Um, by, I don't know, 95, 96, you had different groups talking about hacktivism as a concept, uh, like Cult of Dead Cow and other groups. Uh, so I was like, well, I do have some, some interest in politics, uh, sp specifically geopolitics. Can I become an activist? And I did. Um, it wasn't so much later, and probably what the audience may remember from during the law days, where my hacking was less of curiosity and more malicious. That's where I kind of became the bad guy, really. Do you remember a kind of a definitive point where you decided to, all right, I'm going to take this one step further and I'm not going to patch this system. I'm actually going to try to dig around and see what else I can find. Was there a pinnacle moment where you found yourself, you know, at a fork in the road and you decide to go the other direction that you can recall? And how did you kind of reconcile those feelings? Yeah, well, it, uh, it definitely started in 2000 and in the year 2000, there was a conflict uh, well, it was a conflict that had been going on for about 60 years plus. Um, the United States Navy uh, was using an island off the, uh, off the, I would say a smaller island off the, off the main island of Puerto Rico, and they were using um, depleted uranium shells for testing. As a result, there were a lot of protests. People were getting cancer. It, was, it became a very big thing. 
And so I decided that I wanted to be uh, a hacktivist. Then I started attacking the U.S. Navy and the Puerto Rican government for allowing um, the use of that island for, for training. In 2001, there was an incident where you had a U.S. spy plane, um, you know, get into a, I would say, a, a, an accident in air with a Chinese uh, fighter jet. Um, the spy plane crashed off one of the islands right off of China, and the Chinese government would not release that spy plane back to the United States without a formal public apology uh, by Bill Clinton at the time, President Bill Clinton. And so there was uh, a lot of rumbling in the underground about, well, you know, can this be a hacktivist operation? And yeah, it became a, you know, I mean, some people call it like the first U.S. Sino uh, or U.S. Chinese um, cyber war or whatever. I, I don't think that really, I, I can't, it's hard for me to label it that, but, um, you know, overnight you had thousands or rather hundreds to thousands of U.S. government websites being defaced by a group called the Chinese Hacker Union, who were boasting that they had 60,000 plus hackers in their arsenal. It was complete nonsense. So yeah, I, I joined up with a Canadian called Pantera from Hack the Hack the um, uh, from Hackwiser and Fear the Beer, and we just started attacking Chinese infrastructure. Mm. Uh, that's when things changed for me. Um, but I want to just let the audience know that I think after that I kind of chilled out. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I was like, "All right, cool. I proved the concept. I, I could be a hacktivist. I could be a malicious hacker if I wanted to." And I started working, and I had a job, and I was dating, and I was, you know, I got into cars. Right, I had a normal life after that. Um, it wasn't until you know 2010 where I, I decided to come back and unretire that Sabu persona. Uh, and was there something that happened while you were in the workforce or there was a driving force that made you want to return to that lifestyle? Or did you just one day wake up and it was like as easy as that? Like, oh, I'm just going to kind of go back and kick the tires and see what's going on. And then it just kind of morphed from there. Or how did you make that decision? Well, unfortunately, um, even though I'm a big proponent on evolution and evolving, uh, I definitely de-evolved and um, it was escapism again. My grandmother had passed away, mm. you know, by, by 2010, I was taking care of her. She was, she was, you know, bedridden. She was very sick. And so taking care of her and seeing her slowly diminish and wither away uh, wasn't good for the, for the mindset. I was really depressed. Yeah. And so I said, okay, well, it's time to bring Sabu back and, and, uh, there was a bunch of other things happening at the same time. You had the Arab Spring that was about to pop up. Um, you had the whole thing with WikiLeaks and um, you know Chelsea Manning, and so yeah, it was just it was just a culmination of several different things. And I came back, um, not proud of it, definitely not. Um, but it's led me to this place now, and um, I definitely don't have regrets about it. I wish I could, you know, kind of change things, but sure, you know, it's it's. Uh, I hope that answers your question. It's kind of how I ended up here. No, no, definitely. And I mean, just grief alone, that kind of heart sick, you know, I think uh, there's not, we're all human and, and everyone um, to experience that kind of grief, it's, it's, you know, paralyzing and um, desperate people do desperate things, right? Um, and as I've always said, as long as you take accountability for your actions, you're, you know, um, and try to right your wrong, then 
um, I can forgive just about anything, right? But um, it sounds like it was just a culmination and buildup of a lot of things that you have built your life around overcoming. And I think that that, like I said before, speaks volumes to your integrity and who you are as a person now, because that's not an easy thing to overcome by any stretch of the imagination. That's incredibly hard. And that takes a lot of work um, to get through. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Um, it, w- it definitely was uh, a hell of a ride. I put, <laughs> I, I, I put it I put it that way because, yeah, you know, I came from an environment where therapy wasn't a thing and talking to people really wasn't a thing. And so you kind of had to figure it out on your own, mm. um, which kind of led me to the knock on the door. You know, I had I had the FBI finally find me, figure out who I was. Um, and, you know, one of the first things that uh, my podcast ho- co-host, Chris Tarbell, literally told me, like the moment we met, he was like, you, you know, you do realize how how stupid this is, right? Like, you're, this is nonsense. Um, you know, what exactly are you trying to do? What exactly are you trying to accomplish? I mean, he gave me a reality check. And I, that's a reality check that I needed. Mm. Honestly, I needed that reality check. Um, I, I should have known better, and I did for the most part. But it wasn't until I had another adult look me in the eyes and say, "Look, you're about to destroy your life and the lives of your family um, for something as stupid as hacktivism." Um, and you know, we can have a debate on whether hacktivism can be a good thing or not. That's not my point here. My point is that the path that I was going down. Um, was 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 rather radical. I was being radicalized uh, little by little, mm. and so it was. It was. I would say that having that knock on the door was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, because it kind of gave me an, an opportunity, kind of to, to have some self reflection. Um, and even that time in prison, it allowed me to really think and see that um, that I was on the wrong path. And I would say that finally. Um, the chief judge of the Southern District of New York, Judge Preska. Um, some people like her, some people don't. But she gave she gave me another reality check as well. Uh, during sentencing, you know, she um, she made me realize that she could have blazed me. She could have given me the max. Uh, she could have given me 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, she it was at her uh, at her mercy at that point, regardless of however I helped the FBI or not. Um, and that was not a good feeling. That was not a good feeling or position to be in. Um, so I needed to, uh, you know, change my life from that point forward and, and become a better version of myself. I'm literally sitting here nodding my head because there, it's so important to have, you know, to be held accountable and have somebody not be afraid. Obviously, the FBI is not going to be afraid to call anybody out on accountability. But I'm thinking of a time when I was in college. And let's just say I wasn't necessarily applying myself the way that I should. And I remember very clearly sitting down my college coach and her just sitting down and basically saying to me, Sager, are you trying to mess up here? And she didn't say it. (laughs) There were some additional words that were used. But it was that conversation, you know, and I have amazing parents, but it was just somebody else, you know, somebody that, that I wasn't, you know, lived with for the past, you know, 18 years at the time that just sat me down and called me out of my BS. And I was like, oh, someone notices. And it, and I've told her, we're super close now. I've told her, you changed 
the entire trajectory of my life. You really and truly did just by having that simple conversation. And so I think, you know, with with parenting, with kids, you know, I used to work at a boarding school before I, I got into technology. And I would say to them, I'm like, you might not like what I have to hear. But honestly, when you look back on this, this is going to be a conversation that you'll really remember because it's so important. I know it's hard and I know you might not like me after this, but that's the best gift that I think I can give you at, during those years. Um, and so I think obviously that rings true for you is just having that reality check. Someone say like, listen, there are consequences for your actions and there's a better way to go about conducting your life. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And that's wonderful. I'm glad you got to experience that. I feel like a lot of people unfortunately don't get to experience that. That's a real shame. Um, it's okay to be called out. Mm -hmm. It's okay to, it's okay to, to realize you've made a mistake and, um, you know, and, and, and try to figure out the lessons from that mistake. Right. Um, I think that you and I both, uh, got to experience that and it helped us in many ways. Um, yeah. at the, and you know, the one thing that I, I would say my takeaway from this was, um, especially after sentencing, especially after having to deal with the consequences of my actions, um, it allowed me to, um, I say, I would say it allowed me to, to get into the industry I wanted to get into the right way. I had to make, I had to make up not only for my past transgressions, but I also had to, you know, not only give back to the community, mm. but, um, to earn that trust from not only organizations, like yours or Laquinets, um, but also my clients. You know, this this one thing I'll say is that since I've been back, um, and since I've been you know working as a professional in the industry, I've only ever had one client walk away from a deal because I was part of the job, and it's not because of my past. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's part of it. Um, it wasn't because they were afraid of trusting me or um, scared that I would do something to the network. And it was more of, well, the, the structure of the business, um, you would have a CISO that reported to the legal department and the lawyers didn't really understand the, um, you know, the, the nuances of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, so from their perspective, and I don't blame them, by the way, from, from their perspective, they saw bringing me on as liability rather than, um, uh, you know, what would happen if we bring in this bad guy into our network, right? Or a former bad guy. So I've, I've been fortunate enough that folks have given me a chance, um, especially clients, uh, partners, and, and other organizations. Um, it's not easy to come back from that kind of um, sentence or, or process. I've spoken to a lot of former hackers that are having a terrible time getting into the industry, mm. no matter how they approach it. And I always give them advice. I say, look, if you really want to be involved, then it's a process. And the first thing that you have to do is, is start to gain trust, become a researcher, start posting CVEs, um, start having talks, do events. Um, you know, it, it's going to take some time, but trust me, I, I've, I've proven that you can come back from that, especially in cybersecurity. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm nothing special. If I could do it, definitely you guys could do it as well. And I think that's great advice, whether you've been on, you know, the, the wrong side or whether you're first trying to break into the industry, it's that there's a common thread in that it, nothing happens overnight. And then it, it takes a lot of work, like, and that's an understatement, but it's 
some of the, you know, the most rewarding work. And I don't think anyone, whether you're a CISO or, you know, a CEO, they're like, oh, I'm, you know, they're constantly learning and they're constantly, you know, uh, every day is something different. And so I think, you know, whether you're first starting to break into the industry or you're at the the top of the top, there's always an opportunity to, to get better. But it, it takes, to your point, a considerable amount of, of work to get there. Um, and a lot of, you know, reaching out to folks um, and asking for help. Um, so let's fast forward to the work that you're doing now with Alacronet. Can you kind of walk us through a day in the life and uh, some of the, you know, the work that you're doing there and the and you're giving back to the cybersecurity community in such an impactful way? Um, they're very lucky to have you, obviously. Oh, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, they're, you know, Alacronet is, is cool, right? It's, it's, um, it is a business that's in cyber. They're mostly on the reseller side. So they're VAR. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I think the, what, what attracted me to the business was the fact that they were trying to think outside the box. They were saying, well, you know, we're dealing with a lot of clients. We have a lot of great folks that come to us for their needs. And you know, a lot of these other, these, a lot of these organizations are also looking for pen testing or offensive services. Um, you know, for, for various reasons, whether it's to, to hit a checkbox, um, to, to, uh, to fulfill obligations for cybersecurity uh, policies or whatever it is. Um, you know, why can't we offer that as a service as well? And so, you know, the CEO reached out to a couple of folks and a couple of folks reached out to me and said, Hey, heck, would you like to build out a, um, a pen testing team? Uh, mostly, you know, not only pen testing, but on the cyber risk side of things. So, um, so with that quick intro, I am the director of research at Alacronet. I am the guy. I'm the nerd. <laughs> I'm the, I, call, I call myself the resident nerd. If you guys mm-hmm. have questions about, um, you know, security tools or demoing a product or how does th- this thing work or what what's this vulnerability about? Um, do you need a red team? That, that's fine. I'll take care of it. Um, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades, everything offensive. I try to help with a defensive side, but my, in my career path, I've spent, you know, 95% of my time doing offensive work. So I'm always looking at ways to help clients, uh, understand not only, you know, the issues they're facing, the kind of gaps that they're dealing with, um, the kind of tools that they're using, what kind of tools they could be using, but also how to, how to mature their security program. Um, what I like about Alacronet is that we try to offer a white glove service um, and not just, you know, be a pen test mill where you just come in for a scan and call it a day, you know? Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of what I do on a daily basis. I'm still on the offensive. If you wanted to shorten this whole, you know, two minutes of me talking, um, I'm basically doing the same thing I did before as a bad guy, but as a good guy, the difference is I'm communicating to the client's, what the issues are, how to deal with the issues, why the issues even exist in the first place, and how to mitigate those issues uh, moving forward. Yeah, so there's a lot of different uh, avenues that you can go in in cybersecurity, right? So I think for me, if I could go back and do the more technical route, I would, without a doubt, pen testing would be, I I just find it so fascinating. Um, And I think it's because of the passion of you know, some of the folks that I've met along the way and just their ability to problem solve and no day is, you know, the same as before. What is it about pen testing specifically for folks that are considering getting into that career path that you find, you know, so compelling and that you were drawn to? Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not an artist. Um, 
I could write lyrics, but I can't sing. Uh, I'm not a carpenter or a mechanic. I mean, I could change the oil, but that's pretty much it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, initially, I figured out that I was pretty good at breaking things. Um, and breaking things is fine. If you're able to break something and, uh, you know, kind of figure out why it went wrong, why that thing broke, um, you know, the nuances the and provide context. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but it's one thing I'll, I'll, I'll this one forewarning I'll give out to the audience here is that pen testing uh, may sound fun, um, but if you're not able to communicate uh, concerns and risk and severity, um, if you can't really explain why a vulnerability exists and how to deal with that vulnerability, then you're going to have a, a rough time. Um, when I speak to interns or folks that want to get into the industry as pen testers, I let them know right off the jump that, yeah, you get to do some hacking. That's cool. But that's a small portion. That's a small part of what your actual job is going to be. Um, you could be someone like a, like a Tavis or Mandy from Google Security. I think he's awesome. He's one of my favorites. He could, because of his position, do research all day, mm-hmm. you know, he, he and, and that's a great thing. If, that, if you want to be a hacker, um, if you want to be a tinkerer, that's a fantastic job to have. And you have to reach like his level to be able to do that and get hired by Google security or a company that wants you to do research and development. Fantastic. Now, if you've got, if you want to be a pen tester and you want to provide that kind of service to your clients, then not only do you have to understand the nuances and context and background and um, the concepts of security issues and flaws, categories, and uh, understand the difference between a kill chain and, and the, the mid-attack framework and all the different categories and subcategories. You have to understand all of that stuff. You have to be able to prove all of that stuff, and you have to be able to communicate all of that stuff. Mm. Pen testing as a professional is going to require that not only you're able to do the job for the client, you're able to do the reporting for the client, but you're also able to kind of explain to the client what it all means. Because the biggest waste of time and the biggest waste of money for any organization is to hire a pen tester or a company. They get a massive report with a bunch of findings. And because of lack of context or because things weren't explained properly or, um, you know, the debrief wasn't as effective uh, communication-wise, then it becomes academic. So now you have a point-in-time report that the client really is not going to do anything with. And if you get hired to do the same job the next year, you're going to see the same exact results and nothing's changed. So yes, uh, my my message to folks out there that want to get into pen testing is uh, you want to be able to not just, you know, sign up to do a job, and provide a report and move on to the next, you want to be able to help your client mature the security program, deal with their vulnerabilities, understand their gaps, and uh, ensure that, you know, by the time you leave that job and you're done and you're getting paid for it, that their security posture is in a much better place. So what would you say for you is the most rewarding aspect? Is it delivering that final report or what is the most rewarding um, component of what you do on a day-to-day basis that keeps you, you know, waking up in the morning and, and doing it over and over again. I'll be very honest with you, and, and I'm trying to be as frank as possible, but the most rewarding part of this job for me is seeing progress. Hmm. I've worked with clients over multiple years where I first did a red team, an internal red team, 
and their network was like butter, right? I could compromise Active Directory domain admin in uh, five minutes. I have full control of, of their security tools. I have control of their databases. I have access to their PII or intellectual property. And yeah, that's, that's a bummer um, for their program. And then I come back the next year and it takes me an hour. Um, and I come back the, the year after and like there are enough security controls in place that, you know, 85% of the attacks that I'm, I'm, I'm working off of, uh, you know, are unsuccessful either because they're remediated or mitigated or because their controls in place in general that would uh, uh, lower the severity of the attack path, right? Um, so seeing that, is a motivator for me. Yeah. What is not what is not a motivator for me is when I'm doing a big job and I'm spending, you know, four weeks on it and I I, you know, I delivered this this custom report with a bunch of great content, write-ups and documentation, screenshots, attack paths, and then I come back the year after the year after and nothing's changed. Um, that's when I feel the job becomes tedious. Because at that point, the organization's not really trying to, you know, enhance or improve their program. They're just checking off a box somewhere. And, um, you know, my fear is that I do a big job like that. And, you know, a year later, two years later, the, the customer gets hacked. And, uh, you know, during the investigation, what are they going to find? They're going to find my report. Now, I have to answer uncomfortable questions about, you know, why did the customer do what, what it is that they had to do, um, you know, in the event of that compromise. And it, it's, it's really... It's hard to, to, to deal with sometimes when, when you see that. Now, there's one thing I'll say. Over the years, I've seen, um, and you know what? Unfortunately, the rise of ransomware have motivated a lot of CISOs and security engineers and so on uh, to take their security much more serious. So in a way, I'm glad. Um, of course, I feel bad for the victims, obviously. Um uh, but I'm glad that there's at least some motivator for companies to take the security more serious. Because uh, I tell you, uh, for a long time, that wasn't the case. I'm sure you, you know that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also to your point too, aside from uh, one of the biggest problems and the, you know, kind of the genesis behind this podcast in general is that folks are woefully understaffed when it comes to technology and specifically cybersecurity. So the point of, you know, bringing folks like you onto this podcast to discuss your background is my hope is to, to try to bring more people into the fold and get them interested in, in joining this, you know, amazing world that we're a part of, um, because they're very much so needed because I think those reports, people have the best of intentions and, but something comes up inevitably as it always does. And then, you know, it gets put on the back burner. And then before you know it, to your point, it's a year later and they still haven't fixed that vulnerability. <laughs> and it's, it's, I can't even imagine the uphill battle that, um, folks that only have, you know, one person on their security team must, must feel, um, at that point. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it, it's, I, there's, there's a lot of reasons why an organization may not take the security too serious or may make the changes they need to make in order to, to improve the security posture, whether that's on the internal side or external side. Um, and it, you know, a lot of it is budget. We've heard the budget, uh, reasoning and excuses for a long time. Yeah. I think that's changing now that folks are realizing that, um, there's a lot of tools available um, to kind of help you deal with a lot of the problems that, you know, you may face. Um, some of them are open source. Some of them are free. Um, some of them are within budget. You have organizations that are willing to, to, to work with clients 
and not just bang them out for a, a large yearly license. Um, it's not the 1990s anymore. It's not the early 2000s anymore. There's a lot of resources available today um, to improve your internal security program. Um, I do events. I do speeches. I do, um, I mean, it, it, a couple of days ago, I had a client hop on the phone with me because they wanted to discuss different security products. Am I getting anything out of that? No. Half of the security products that, that were mentioned on the phone, uh, or in the phone call rather, was uh, some products that, that Alacronet themselves don't resell or have partnerships with. But that's, you know, my point is, yeah, I'm willing to sit on the phone with you and talk with you for 45 minutes to discuss your options and give you some perspective because I'm hopeful that it, it actually does something. I'm hopeful that, um, you know, you're actually able to move forward and improve your situation. Um, cause that to me is what's, re what's rewarding. Right. Um, and I'm sure you could ask pen testers from, um, from different fields that have been around for quite some time. And I have a feeling I'm willing to wager that many of them will kind of repeat what I'm saying. Um, I don't think realistically with the exception of maybe, uh, intermediate level or entry level, um, uh, pen testers. Uh, I have a feeling that most of these folks have reached that point. Um, and the folks that are just getting into it are just excited not only to have a job um, or, or to be part of the industry, but to do some hacking, which is great. But yeah, you reach a point where you're like, well, I don't want to do this for 20 years and nothing changes. I want to see some results. At least that's my perspective. No, and I think that's, you know, you hit on a lot of good points there. And I think it can be an incredibly fulfilling career, you know, we work with a lot of hospitals and a lot of education. And um, I unfortunately had to spend a, a good chunk of time this past year uh, in the hospital with my mom. And the entire time I was sitting there, I was so profoundly grateful for the security team that was protecting all of the things, you know, that were, were working to keep her alive and, and gratefully we're, we're on the other side of it. But I don't think folks think about that when they go into a hospital, you're like, listen, everything in this room, essentially, it, that's beeping is connected to the internet. And there's somebody protecting that. And if you're one of those people, I, you know, thank you, because I don't think, you know, it gets said enough, because it's, it's such a, I, I can't even imagine waking up and doing that, you know, because it's, it's an uphill battle, right? It's, um, and so it can be an incredibly fulfilling career, for sure. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about it in that way, kind of just what are you working to protect? And when you think about it that way, it's like, all right, I can go to bed at night knowing that I gave my best. Oh, oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, look, I, I did an event with uh, a, a private association out of Texas not that long ago, last year, maybe uh, six months ago, and the association, um, their members are all uh, small to medium-sized, or let's say SMBs, right? Small businesses to medium-sized businesses um, that have some sort of function within the oil industry, whether it's a mechanic shop, whether it's the oil refinery, whether it's the guys or the, the you know the teams that build out an oil refinery. So all of these companies were are part of the oil industry in some capacity. And so the whole point of the conversation was, uh, the whole reason why they brought me in in the first place is um, to introduce these companies to the concept that they are very important and they play a very important role in the overall security posture of not only their industry, but of the country in general. You know what I like about cybersecurity? What I like about cybersecurity is that 
um, is agnostic. It, mm-hmm. it, there's no right or left. There's no religious or non-religious. Um, there's no, you know, color or gender or anything. There's no politics associated with cybersecurity, at least not yet. And I'm thankful for that. And so I sat there in this room with a bunch of folks that, uh, play a role in the oil industry. And my point was, believe it or not, each and every one of you play a major part of not only your industry, but the overall security posture of this country. And so folks were uh, curious about that statement. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, if if a, a threat actor, a group, uh, let's say from a foreign nation, a nation state, they were interested in compromising uh, Exxon, right? Um Exxon has their own security teams. They have their own budgets dedicated to, to cybersecurity. Maybe that threat actor group cannot compromise Exxon directly. Well, they may target the mechanics mm. or they may, they may target the, the teams that work as subcontractors to Exxon. Exxon, you know, they cannot hire an entire uh, industry full of people to work for them. So they have subcontractors and contractors doing jobs for them. That's what you guys are. So you would have a threat actor compromise your networks, sit there and wait until they have the moment to traverse or move laterally into the Exxon networks, especially as you become uh, a deeper partners and you now you're part of the supply chain, right? Um, and you can apply that to anything. You can apply that to banking. You can apply that to some logistics. Um, but my point there was, um, you know, we could actually all work together and get you guys up to a good point. If, if, if this conversation is a, is a helpful motivator for you, by all means, um, you know, ask me all the questions you need um, because I think that that's very fulfilling. So it, it kind of ties into your point about being at the hospital. We have folks that, um, you know, they might have an entry-level job at a small clinic, maybe in the middle of El Paso, Texas. Maybe their job is not as fulfilling as they think, but they're doing a, they're playing a very important role. Um, and not only you know securing that clinic, but they're also helping the overall security posture of the country. If you think about it, yeah, you're they're saving somebody's life. <laughs> they're absolutely, um, and you know you might not be the one doing the surgery or you know um, on the the front lines as they speak, but I very much so recognize and appreciate the people that are on. Uh, the back lines, specifically in in that industry and, and in any industry really, but specifically healthcare and and education and because um, it's a tough job, it's a really hard job, but it's a very fulfilling job. Oh yeah. Um, so what do you think? You know, kind of going back to the hacking, you know, before we kind of wrap things up. But what do you think the future of hack or future of hacking will unfold, and what new kind of developments or technologies do you see on the horizon? If you can kind of forecast and look into the future. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always a hard question to answer because, um, you know, I would love to be optimistic mm. and I, I, I'm not, I don't like to be the, the FUD guy and, and spread fear, right? Uncertainty and doubt. <laughs> that's really not my goal. It's not really what I aim for. But the reality is, is that we have a lot of work to do. There are millions of companies here and abroad that, um, you know, they're nowhere near where they need to be. Mm. There are a lot of fundamental problems that organizations have not learned to deal with yet, whether it's because of budgets or because of a lack of human resources. The reality is, is that there's a lot of work to do and we're nowhere near where we need to be. I know I said that a moment ago, but I have to emphasize that. Um, 
I would say that in terms of uh, security in general, cybersecurity in general, we're going to see a lot of great tools come out like yours and others. We're going to see a lot of, um, you know, great uh, conversations to be had. I'm hopeful that um, regardless of who's president, uh, CISA continues to get the funding and resources that it needs. I hope that its leadership team continues um, to provide resources to organizations um, and, and those alerts go a very long way, especially with uh, uh, the industrial systems and all the ransomware attacks. Now, in terms of tools, we're going to see, thanks to the advent or the release of GPT-4 and Plus, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to see a lot of tools become very uh, enhanced, improved. You might have, you might see some companies get replaced or overtaken by new tools and new companies. We um, might see current tools uh, being improved. Uh, internally with, with, you know, the new AI capabilities. We're definitely going to see more of that. Um, hopefully at some point we see zero trust become more of a thing that's more accessible to organizations. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, least trust is probably the most realistic route, but the concept of zero trust is still noble. And I'm hopeful that we see more of that. Um, but we're still going to see the same kind of attacks we've seen for the last 10 years. You're still going to have phishing attacks. You're still going to have ransomware attacks. There's still going to be, you know, business email compromise attacks. Um, the reality is, is that nothing is really going to change until we make some fundamental changes. Um, a big shout out to Microsoft and Google and Apple for dealing with the password problem. We're trying to deal with the password problem. Um, like I said, we have fundamental issues we kind of need to sort out uh, before we get comfortable, right? And it's going to take quite some time. Now, for any of you that are looking to get into cybersecurity as an industry, the one thing I'll tell you is um, this is essentially, you know, the gold, the gold mining era of San Francisco, right? Um, this is your opportunity to jump into a career that you know you're going to have at least 15 to 20 years before it starts to get redundant. Um, it's a great opportunity to make some money, take care of your family, uh, have a strong career. Uh, build some businesses, be an innovator, be disruptive. Cybersecurity right now is hitting an innovation wall. And I would love to see more people get involved and bring in more tools. Now, I'll give you guys a, 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 a pro tip. For any of you guys that want to get rich and you know build out a really cool business idea, visualization. Visualization of cybersecurity is going to take you very far, whatever that means. Um, if you ever looked at a cybersecurity report, a pen test report, a threat intel report, it's essentially a book of words and jargon and vernacular that some people don't even understand. Even security professionals don't understand. Um, if you could visualize uh, security concepts and you could start to communicate more plainly, you're going to get very far very quick. So that's those are my takes. And I hope uh, I hope there's some interesting takes there for the audience. No, that was super, super helpful. And I think folks are going to get a lot from this conversation. So I think that's a good place to put a pin in it. Um, but before I do that, where can folks find out more information about you? And how do you like to engage um, with people that are, you know, want to pick your brain and, um, you know, see what a day in the life is of a pen tester and, and learn how to break into the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the the best way to communicate with me directly is just add me on LinkedIn. I actually use LinkedIn. I'm 
maybe I'm a boomer or whatever, but um, I feel like the people that have hit me up on LinkedIn are those that are much more serious about communicating about cybersecurity. Um, Twitter's is, is Twitter is interesting because it's a broader reach, but it's kind of accessible. So yeah, feel free to add me, uh, Hector Montsegur on LinkedIn. Um, just take a look at my network, and you, you can tell who I am. I know, I know there's some like uh, fake accounts or whatever, but um, just look at uh, you know Sager's uh, LinkedIn, and I'm connected to her. Feel free to just jump in and add me from her from her uh, network. Um, and you also have your podcast. Yeah, yeah, I have a podcast called Hacker and the Fed, where I discuss many of the topics that we discussed today. It's <laughs> um, also talk about cybersecurity incidents and so on. So. If you want a former Black Cast perspective, feel free to jump in and take a listen. Well, thank you so much. You are such a gift to the uh, cybersecurity community. Really appreciate you carving out you know, the time to, to speak with us today. I think you provided a lot of valuable points for folks to take back and consider um, with their own cybersecurity career and even folks that are already in the industry as well. So really appreciate your time, Hector. Yeah, I appreciate the kind words and, and, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I think this was a great conversation. And, um, you know, again, if you ever need me in the future, feel free to hit me up. <laughs>